everybody. My name is Danny Grant. I am an artist, a drawing and painting instructor. I live in Austin, Texas, and I would like to welcome you back to the studio. This is the place where I interview and talk shop with other professional artists, and we get an inside glimpse into their daily lives as professional artists. On this episode, I talked with an artist whose passion and energy for his work seems boundless. I think you'll find him very inspiring. I know I did. Uh, his name is Jazz Knight from Brooklyn, New York. But before we get to that, I want to say hello to my friends at the Atelier Dojo here in Austin, Texas. If you're an artist in the Austin, Texas area, it is the place to be. If you're not in the Austin, Texas area, sign up for one of our workshops and come have a visit. I am teaching figure drawing and intro to drawing in our current term, and I could not be happier to be involved with the fine folks at Atelier Dojo. Check us out, atelierdojo.com. And now, without further delay, here is my chat with Jazz Knight. All right, I'm, I'm uh, really excited to have artist Jazz Knight on the phone with me. Jazz, how are you doing? Thanks for, thanks for uh, taking the time. I'm doing great, and thank you for having me. Oh, absolutely, man. Um, I, yeah, I think like I told you on, on email, I've been looking at your, your work on Instagram, and uh, just really, really good stuff. Um, so I was excited to, to be able to get, a, get a chance to have a conversation with you. Thanks a lot. Uh, this is a rare occasion to be able to actually speak <laughs> aside from the painting. So, right. yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, no, that that's a good point. You know, people we we just see the paintings and we don't we don't really get to hear uh from the actual artist that much. Um so where are you located, Jazz? Where's your where's your studio? Where's your home? I'm located in Brooklyn, New York, and okay. that's where my studio and my home is. So okay. cool. Yeah. Is your your studio in your home? My studio is in my home. Nice. Um okay. this is more of a it's just, it's more utilitarian setup. Uh, yeah. You know, it's based on just trying to be as efficient with money and work as possible. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> yeah, it's nice to be able to roll out of bed and, and uh, walk into the next room, right? Indeed. Indeed. Um, so what kind of, where in Brooklyn are you? I'm located in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. Okay. Uh, at pretty much the intersection of Brooklyn, there are so many subdivisions in Brooklyn. Mm -hmm. uh, so, but I'm pretty much at a nexus of th uh, essentially three different neighborhoods. You have Greenpoint, Williamsburg, and you have Bushwick. Uh, I'm in the Williamsburg side of this this uh, uh, okay. intersection, but uh, yeah, it's like I'm walking distance from either of those neighborhoods. Excellent. I spent uh, about three and a half years in Bushwick. Okay. Some Okay, but what round? Uh, were you off the L train? Yeah, I was off the L uh, DeKalb what? stop. DeKalb, okay. I used to live there. I used to live there. Nice. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I hear Bushwick is looking a lot more like Williamsburg these days. Well, you know, <laughs> if Bushwick is looking more like Williamsburg, Williamsburg is looking more like Soho. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that makes so, sense. You yeah. know, <laughs> so it's like, it's sort of like the. Uh, Yep. commercialization is just moving deeper into Brooklyn and, you know, it's affecting whatever is the peripheral neighborhood, you know, yeah. in, in a similar Williamsburg-y way, right. you know? Right, right. 
um so what what's going on in the uh studio right now what are you preparing for a show or what what's uh what are you gearing up for well uh i'm uh i'm preparing for an exhibition but i have a couple opportunities within the next uh month and a half two months so uh there is a curator slash gallerist who reached out to me and he's quite interested in, um, uh, you know, there's a saying that where words are many, like, or better yet, I should say, the saying goes that uh, even a fool is thought to be wise until he opens his mouth. (laughs) (laughs) And so I've I've often, like, I, I try to like limit the amount of things I say. That's, that's another reason why this conversation is kind of interesting because it's one of these rare moments where I'm opening myself up to say something because sometimes you, you appreciate what a person is doing until they start talking. But um, <laughs> I don't think that, but you know, this, case, yeah. this, this curator reached out to me. I have been in contact with him in the past uh-huh. uh, and he's a gallerist. He, he's very active in a particular kind of, contemporary art scene but he's quite interested in what i'm doing so does and he work he with wants... a few different galleries or sorry oh yeah i mean well that's no that's great i'm feel free to cut in anytime yeah, yeah, no. if i go on a rant you know no, 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 that's actually, okay. i appreciate that i'm just i'm I'm, uh, I'm curious about this uh this idea of, of this curator kind of reaching out to to the artist yeah no no this is this is this is, I don't know how unique it is, but yeah. uh, it's a welcome thing for me because this is exactly the sort of thing that I need, I think, for what I'm doing, you okay. know. Um, but in the past, I, yes, I have shown and I've not been represented in some years, although okay. um, I think I'm a, uh, I kind of, I represent what is a possibility is what I will say. I represent the possibility for artists who are committed to a very, a very idiosyncratic view on life sure. and their work, who are committed to certain fundamentals um, and how that is, how it is possible to still make a living without following uh, some sort of track that I, I'm going to try to edit the word sort out of anything I'm saying because that's just filler. But um, okay. without following what people have presented to them through art school and through their education as the only way to make a living, uh, i.e., you know, working with the galleries or, and, and, and an era where the accessibility to the artist and the visibility is potentially, I won't say infinite, but it is as broad as the internet Right. Uh, right. This is a great era to be a painter. I think it's a great era because you can actually do exactly what you want to do, and you can make a living doing it. Yeah. Uh, okay. So that's a bit of an excursus back to what the actual question. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, I want to. Yeah. 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 But so yeah, this, I, do, I want to circle back to all that. But yeah, let's talk about the. Uh, yeah. Sorry, yeah. Guys. So this curator, uh, like I, sh- I showed with him some years ago. I moved to New York to work for an artist. I've grappled with in my mind the idea of whether I should actually name such, you know, name this artist who I work for because I feel like with certain bad kinds of art, yeah. uh, 
to just mention them is to perpetuate their their bad art. <laughs> so, sure, sure. so I've I actually had uh, somewhat of a a crisis. I was because it's, you know this is this is more or less integral to my story working right. for this guy and moving to New York. This is how I ended up in New York. But at the same time, having an issue mentioning him because to to mention him is to give him further publicity. And I think his art, the last thing he needs is more publicity. <laughs> so, um, but needless to say, I worked for a pretty terrible modern, or I should say contemporary. I need to distinguish between okay. that. Uh, actually, actually, at the front end, of this, this is already becoming overly verbal. <laughs> but at the front end of this conversation, I think it's it's necessary. Like the nomenclature thing needs to get taken care of. Okay. You have the contemporary art, you have the modern art, modernism, right. and you have realism, which now it has become an umbrella. Uh, okay, you have realism and classical art, two terms that are fairly ambiguous now because they've become... Right. So elastic as to mean so many different things. They they don't really mean anything in particular. So realism, for instance, you know Thomas Aikens was a realist. Uh-huh. Um, uh, I think of a guy like a, I guess you would call a guy like Courbet a realist, right? right. He, you know, uh, in terms of the classical definition, classical not in terms of classical art, but the the textbook definition of what a realist painter was. Right. He was going for something that was antithetical to the classical ideal. Um, and he was trying to present people this, uh, I'm not trying to give an education lesson here, no, but no, basically no. what I'm saying. So, so this, this term realism has been adopted to, to mean almost anybody uh, who's painting in a, in a way that has a certain degree of fidelity to nature and verisimilitude. Right. Uh, they, they use this, this word, realism to denote what it is that they are doing. Well, I don't know how it got here, but I'm, I'm going to find my way back. So you have the realism, you have the classical, you have the modernism. So often when I'm speaking of the art world, and you have some people who have an issue with the term um, contemporary art. Right. What I mean by it is, again, is pretty much your textbook definition. It's, the, it's basically post-modern, essentially post-postmodern. It's anything that has dialogue with a post-Duchampian like, uh, discussion in the larger art world. I'm not talking about a niche within uh, an ac- uh, you know, some sort of academic uh, situation. I'm t- you, because it is a sense in which any artist who's working now is a contemporary artist. Right. Okay. Um, like by the definition of what contemporary means. But right. the term contemporary generally is applied to a certain kind of art that has nothing to do with the kind of art that I'm doing, you know? Right, right, right. right. So, <laughs> there's a lot of words. So but, what do you okay, call so yourself? Now, what, what would you call? Uh, uh, sometimes for lack of, I mean, the whole point in language is communication with people. Right, yeah. And, uh, and so you, you adopt terminology that, is used by the larger culture to denote what it is that you're doing. And so I would have to say there's, it's, there's a sense in which what I'm doing is realism. And there's a sense in which people would say it's classical. Right. Although, again, these terms are somewhat elastic, and much of what is purported to be classical art within these modern-day ateliers and academies isn't actual really they're not classical in the sense of David or Ang or something. They're not sure. going through the same sort of education. And it is, there isn't a rigor or a focus on uh, fifth century Greek uh, art, 
you know, this, this idealization of the figure. And right. most right. times their goals are more in keeping with realism. Wow. I'm, I'm, <laughs> no, that's I'm really good. I, I, that, yeah, yeah. No, I think that's a great explanation. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, that, so, okay, back to the curator. So he reached out to me and he wanted me, he wants to more or less kind of have an exclusive representation of me uh, I might be saying that to my own peril, <laughs> but he w- he wants to present me and what I'm doing in a way because it's a uh, it's fairly fresh and it's sort of new in certain ways, which I'm sure we'll unpack yeah. some more during conversation. So with all of those words, I'll turn. I'm I'm sorry for that long winded, <laughs> but there you go. Back back to you. <laughs> uh, that's great. Um... All right, so that so he's so this curator is sort of like setting up shows for you, right? So he, what is is he sort of approaching different galleries and saying, "Hey, I want to show this guy. I want to put this show together. Can we do this here?" That kind of a thing. He has a gallery himself, okay. and he has good relations with other galleries and uh, and just institutions. All right, and uh, he is a guy who. I met prior to meeting my most influential patron, which is a woman whose name was Peggy Cooper Kafritz. She died last year. Um, And she, uh, she was my, you know, basically savior as a patron. Uh, And, uh, but I had met him before and showed with him, but then she had a good relationship. And there's a long story regarding that whole situation, but needless to say, one of her last, one of the last things she was trying to get was me to link up with this, this particular gallerist. And, um, and after she passed, I reached out to him and then we, you know, we began a little bit of a dialogue and he, then he reached back out to me and now, so he's interested in a more comprehensive presentation of what it is I'm doing. And uh, much of it has to do with the dichotomizing what I'm doing with a certain kind of, quote unquote realism, you know, the, the figurative kind of art is being presented. Uh, now it's becomes more or less in vogue to be a figurative, uh, to be a representational. See, all of these terms are, yeah, <laughs> they're, I, I, they're rather I, useful. Yeah. I think the one I like is, is, I mean, just because it's, I guess it's more of an umbrella, but I like representational just because it, it you know, says, you know what? You know, you go ahead. I just and just just as you were saying that I I realized I prefer to speak of myself as an observational painter. Oh, okay. As ambiguous as that can be, but yeah. it has more well, to do with the working method, you know. Yeah. Okay. Cool. I like that. And so you, yeah. Let's let's uh, uh, let's get into that a little bit. So you work um, primarily from life or totally from life? I'm, I work more or less exclusively from life, although there are exceptions that have to be made if there's a subject that I that I need to work from sure. that is there's like you know from painting a, a literally a hundred year old woman who yeah lives in another state that's going to I'm going to have to figure a way to do that but I will figure a way to do it that's more or less in keeping with um, and I, this is a point that I need to speak on very specifically okay. because there's a, there's this sort of nonsensical idea that well by being so unaffiliated, I can be totally honest about this. <laughs> like, I, basically, when I was, I started drawing when I was about four or five. Yeah. And uh, the, I never would have been impressed with the person who's tracing a drawing off of something. Right. So I, I don't feel <laughs> like I have to like 
play some sort of politically correct game with trying to pretend that I appreciate that on par with some, you know, that I feel like Norman Rockwell is up there with, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> uh, I'm trying to think of, I'm just thinking of any number, uh, Vona or somebody like, right. no, <laughs> it's not that this is, to me it's self-evident. This is the thing that's sort of self-authenticating that if a person is able to produce again, a certain degree of verisimilitude from life without uh-huh. the aid of some sort of machine, I keep saying sort of some machine or some technology, this is self-evidently more of a feat if it's done without such an aid. So the idea of tracing things off, I know there's a bit of a rant, but to trace something off no, and then please. just reproduce it in another medium is just, is just banal and silly, if you ask me. <laughs> so if I'm using a reference, if I have to use a reference in a situation because the subject, it needs to be depicted because of some emotional reason or something, I'm going to like, I'm going to reproduce it in such a way that it does not take away from my normal working practice, okay. which is almost entirely from life, you know, right. like, you know, with, like I say, the exception of the rare kind of more exotic, uh, depiction that I, you know, but, uh, so what's that I, I'm process I'm, like? Well, I mean, what does that look like if you if you have to use um, some reference material? Um, how do you go about that to to kind of um, make it fit more with uh, you know or get or give it a, a feel, I guess, of 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 having been done from life or like how what's what's well, your well, process? Well, you you blow it up. Okay. You blow it up more or less life size. All right. And then you draw it from life the way you would a person from life. Okay. Uh, right. You know, just draw from it's the reference. idea I got. I'm sorry. What'd you say? So, so you blow it up and then you draw from the reference. Yeah. Okay. Like, it, the, the idea is to be drawn. The idea is that the meat, the heart, the lion's share of the practice for me as a painter is in translating something that's three dimensional to something that's two dimensional. Right. If the work has already been done and I'm simply just tracing it off, there's no fun in it. It's just really a stupid practice, if you're asking me. No, I agree. So, I agree. No, so like, there's no sense in me. All, all you're going to do is impress the neophyte, somebody who's not actually anybody who, like, at least as far as I'm concerned, the only thing that I've ever been impressed with and art is actual real skill. Yeah. And there's no real skill in just tracing stuff off and simply just transit. But like that kind of skill can be developed and you can be bankrupt in terms of your actual technique when a model is in front of you. Oh, absolutely. So, um, yeah. so I feel like that needs to just be stated unapologetically. People need to just not be scared to say if you're, if you're, if you're tracing stuff off and just translating it into oil paint or watercolor, you're a fraud <laughs> to any real artist. You yeah. just are a fraud. It's totally fraudulent and it's, it's way easier to do that than it is to actually learn how to draw and paint from life. And that's just, these things are so evident, self-evident. I don't understand why it's even a discussion. You know, it's, it's just ridiculous. It's just a, it's an absurd kind of, I'm not going to capitulate to someone who wants to bend, who wants to act as though that's as skillful as a person who actually learned how to convincingly portray what they're looking at. But at the same time, I'm not some, I'm not some guy who's going to erect a, a false antithesis, a false dichotomy where it's either you're 100% one or the other. Uh, 
you know, if you learn how to draw from life, you can work with anything. You can draw from anything. Right, you can right. look at a computer and draw off a computer. You can look, I, when, as a kid, when I used to draw, I would draw out of little manuals, instructions, comic books, whatever. Mm-hmm. You know, you're drawing. The, the, the fun is in translating, is in the work of translating it, using your hand and right. your brain. Right, right. It's not, it's, it's not in the, you know, whether you have some sort of what you're translating, the fun is in the actual translation. So Absolutely. I'm anti-tracing. I'm anti-simply reproducing a photographic image. I'm, you know, I've yeah. said that three times over now. So <laughs> starting to go on a rant. <laughs> no, it's great. It's great. I'm, I'm, I'm but a lot of artists are really scared for some reason to say that because they're friends with all it. But I have the benefit of being totally secluded and not friends with any of them. So <laughs> when I see your traits and stuff off, I just think you're fraudulent and ridiculous. You know. So, uh, that's great. Um, so you have no alliances you're worried about tearing down. I have none. I so love I'm, it. I'm yeah. sort of like a lone ranger who can actually, like, <laughs> in some sort of John the Baptist way, just say what I want to say, and you can go ahead and behead me if you have to, but whatever. I'm going to tell you the truth. <laughs> uh, good for you, man. Um, so well, let's uh, let's talk about uh, you as the as the lone ranger. I love that. Uh, I'm gonna. Can I use that now? Can I refer to you as? <laughs> yeah, go ahead, man. <laughs> I guess I guess if there are too many Lone Rangers, then it starts losing its whole Lone Ranger quality. But yeah, sure. <laughs> I don't know. You sound like you sound like the real Lone Ranger to me. Um, so what's your um, what's your studio life like? Like, what's your daily schedule? Like, how many hours are you in the studio a day? Do you have Do you keep kind of a routine? Like, what does that look like uh, on a daily basis? Well. Of course, there are days where there are exceptions, like if you have to go to a show, right. if you have to, to go with the sun or something. But uh, generally speaking, the day begins at 5.21 a.m. I wake up. <laughs> nice. I, the reason why I can, well, I've been on the schedule ever since I left working for that particular artist, and uh-huh. actually before that. Okay. Uh, so I wake up at 5.21, mm-hmm. uh, and I'll begin to just prepare mentally for the day for about... I don't know, about 30 minutes, 40 minutes. I usually begin. What does that, what does that look like? You're just kind of sitting quietly or kind of sitting with a notebook? Yeah, just thinking, thinking, no, it's just thinking about what I'm doing. Uh, thinking about what I'm going to do, focusing. See, because there's a, there's a certain urgency to life. Um, yeah. uh, like I was talking to one of my models uh, about the idea that, you know, would life be less fun if you knew when you were going to die? And then I let him answer that. And then, then I came back with the next line of questioning, which was essentially, well, we know we're not going to be here a hundred years from now, more or less. So there's a sense in which we know we're going to be dead within probably the next 70 years or so. Right. So how much, more information do you have than you already have if you knew the actual date. And then even if you knew the date, that's not going to afford you information about the nature of the last five or 10 years of your life where you might be bedridden or sick or something. I think sure. of all of this because uh, I remember reading a book on, on Paxson, William Paxson. Uh-huh. And um, I believe at some point he was talking about the nature, you know, just the physical strain of painting. Now this is something that, if you're just sitting at a computer or whatever, painting on the chair, you don't really feel this. But like, if you're painting from life, there's a lot of like walking around a lot of times that goes on and you feel, you can, you can feel like your body, this is going to lead me into the schedule thing, but 
yeah. your body is not going to work along with you all the way to the last day of your life to make paintings as efficiently. So when you know you have this kind of limitation of time, it's important to not waste literally a single moment. I often think that if you happen to be incapacitated toward the end of your life and you can, you're sentient and you can actually reflect, you would wish that you had one day that you wasted. So my goal is right. to not waste any days. So I wake up at 521. Great. I more or less prepare mentally for what I'm going to do. At about 550, I begin to work out. And I'll work oh, out between 550 and 635 a.m. Right. After that. What kind of a workout do you do? Uh, it's mostly just like pull-ups, push-ups. Okay. I have some, some weights, uh, bench press. I do some, uh, you know, some squats, etc. I do several you know i vary from day to day okay but that goes on between 6 30 oh, um 5 50 and 6 35 okay and from cool. about 6 45 till 7 i'm cleaning up and then you know i practice piano from 8 to about 9 30 awesome. and then after that it's geometry and perspective after geometry and perspective is lunch and then i begin art by one o'clock so wow. from one until about seven, I'm working on my art generally every day. So, um, yeah. So what is the, I mean, what I, is the uh, geometry and perspective time look like? Like, Well, um, I hope to eventually write a perspective manual for the use of, like, with students. Because oh, here's, the, here's the thing. Uh, like, uh, that's based on a Brunelleschian or Albertian perspective model. Uh -huh. uh, but it'll have it'll it'll tie it in with life drawing and just sort of being able to take something that you've drawn freehand and then establishing a measure point and the you know vanishing point et cetera and and setting it into perspective cool. so that you're not uh, so that you don't have to just invent things out of your imagination you can draw things from life and then you can more or less correct the perspective after right. the fact so that's something I, I'm working on but geometry. I feel like as an artist, you're constantly working with shapes, whether it's mm -hmm. um, enveloping a figure or just mm -hmm. kind of learning how to like break down form. Uh, it's all shape oriented. In other words, yeah, yeah. Uh, like anything that's translating from three dimensional to two dimensional is based in shapes. So geometry is a very good tool. Piero del Francesco is you know geometry master, and he's a guy I really respect. And so I feel like I've, I've brought a lot of geometry tech or several geometry textbooks to that end so that I could just work through. And along with the fact that geometry is essentially logic, you know, math is logic. So it's right. good for your mind. So I just do that. So what are, your, what are your, some of your favorite uh, uh, geometry books? You just mentioned that you. Well, I have the, the classic co-texter. Um, the book I have, I'm looking through what I have here, geometry, the complete, uh, I have a comprehensive course by Dan Podol. Um, What's that, how do you spell that last name? That's uh, uh, P is Pedo, P-E-D-O-E, -E, Dan Pedo. Mm -hmm. um, is, is, yeah, it's the geometry comprehensive course. Um, I'm just looking at the ones on my top shelf. Sure. Uh, I, I, I have a book by Juan Piero de la Francesca that's called The Mathematician's Art, where it deals in good deal with, with geometry um, and how it related to the, his compositions and stuff. Because the perspective he did was sort of a... It was, he was in, 
as a, my perspective teacher, Connors told me he's, he's what they call an Italian primitive. Uh-huh. So his perspective system was based on geometry. It wasn't based on linear perspective because he predated it, you know? So, okay. uh, but well. needs to say, I think those sorts of, it's, they, there's this, again, another false, you hear me referencing false antithesis a lot. <laughs> and there's this idea that the artist is non-mathematical and he's kind of more or less a savant and like an idiot savant. Um, right, right. And that kind of flies in the face of a, a certain kind of tradition, you know, that ha- that always had a strong emphasis on logic and in an internal logic. And uh, the idea that beauty, though it can feel totally organic and, and like it's being arrived at in, in, in a t- a totally non-analytical manner can often be analyzed, you know, almost mathematically, you know, I think of the music of, of Johann Sebastian Bach, which it makes so much sense. It's the most logical and mathematic, but it's also very beautiful. Yeah. So I'm saying you can, like I say, feel free to interject at any point. I mean, the stuff is pouring out. This is like, this is pretty much the, what my day is so like you know <laughs> uh, it's fascinating <laughs> but, man. i love it your um your day sounds i mean your day sounds ideal to me i'm i'm uh listening to this audiobook um it's kind of ironic that i'm i'm listening to an audiobook about deep work i feel like uh i should be cracking that book open but i'm uh, listening to the audio book as I do other things about deep work. Mm-hmm. But, um, but you know, it sounds like, it sounds like your life. Like it, it's about kind of um, basically um, the premise is that we need um, to do anything well, to learn anything well, well, you've got to be able to go deep and to go deep. You have to sort of carve out, um, I think he says for, for kind of the, high level achievers you're looking at probably um about four hours a day and that could be broken up and it's often broken up into kind of two sessions um where you're just you know no distractions you're whatever you're you, you know you're playing your instrument or you're painting um and that's just just that intense concentrated time where you're, you know just completely focused on on work and um and just you know generally cutting out all of the clutter just trying to just trying to get away from uh you know all of the email distractions social media distractions and all that kind of thing um but you're obviously on instagram so how do you how do you deal with um kind of keeping that social media presence and then also you know having this um a very focused uh daily schedule well, I have a 30-minute limit on my being on the app if I'm on it that day at all. Okay, great. And and at this point, I've deleted the app from my phone, so oh, nice. I'm okay. not on it. Okay. When I'm when I'm not posting, I sort of allow for man. I keep saying sort of. That's I allow so nice. for uh, when I get on there, I allow for responding to someone who may have commented on the last post. Okay. And responding to somebody who might, because when I get on there, I get on there with the intent of posting usually. Right. And then the intent is to get off fairly soon because 
nothing good comes of sitting on Instagram for any more than 30 minutes a day. Right. right. There, I mean, you can see I don't have a lot of time allotted for anything. I mean, I ended at, uh, what did I end at? at uh, art from 1 to 7 p.m. And then from about 7 to 8 is dinner. And then I have to read from 8, uh, you know, 10 to uh, 10 o'clock. So I don't, I don't have... I don't have a lot of time to just be sitting around on Instagram. Right. I, in fact, I, I, um, I have a, it's not that people aren't reading. It's the quality of the nature of the reading that they're doing. Sure. So people are on Instagram yeah. and Twitter and, and so forth. And they're reading all kinds of <laughs> That's a great really silly, yeah. frivolous things, right. you know, right. on a regular basis. And just my goal is to not headlines and just, yeah. Garbage. And a lot of it is yeah. like, Oh, Cardi B's dress at such and such. It's like, I don't really care. Like, I'm focused on, I I want the quality of the reading that I'm doing to be the lion's share of it to be actually something that's, that's, that's substantial. That's going to make me a better human being at what it is that I do. I don't want to just be sitting around wasting. And there's something to be said for, uh, you know, the easy, it's just not, I, I need to be challenging myself with what I'm reading. It shouldn't be just like, if it's, if it's something that I'm reading that I get, before I've even skimmed over it, then it's not a challenging enough read. So I need to be reading things that's challenging me with the nature of the writing itself, but also with what is being presented in the writing. So, so what, kind of, what, doing, what kind of things are you reading? Well, right now I'm reading, uh, I'm finishing up, this is taking me far too long. I'm reading a book on Brunelleschi's uh, perspective, but I've, okay. I've read another book by this guy. This book is called uh, the, the Mirror, the Window, and the Telescope. Okay. This is by Samuel Edgerton. Uh, like he wrote a, another book called The Renaissance or Resco- Rediscovery of Linear Perspectives. I read that one some time ago. This one I've been plugging out fairly slowly. There's another book on, on the work of Charles Cordier that I've been reading. Um, basically, any book I buy, if, if it's an art book, the goal is to read it. So I have a, a cool. whole stack yeah. of books that I've... Pardon? No, that's cool. That, I think that's a... That's interesting because, yeah, I mean, we all have stacks and stacks of art books, but I don't know how many people read them. No, I read, I like, <laughs> it, especially if pictures. it's a catalog resume, I read through. In yeah. fact, the goal is now to, I just purchased Leon Bonnard's catalog resume, and the goal is now to learn French so that I can read it because there's a lot of writing in it. Oh, excellent. So, yeah. but I'm going to actually read that whole book. I'm going to read. Pretty every book I have, I, the goal is to read every one of them. Yeah. You know, it's like there's no good in just having a book that you stand in a bookshelf full of books that you stand in front and rub your hands together. You know, like you need to know the the information that's in the books. You know, yeah, yeah. so yeah, so I have books, some books that I, you know, I read you know, some of Yeats poetry just for fun, but then I have books that I'll read that you know, like we have a whole list. I mean, if, if you don't. If you want to know, I can give you a rundown of a bunch of the stuff that's on the bookshelf. There's a Inhuman Bondage. It's a book uh, by Davis on slavery, uh, American slavery, American freedom, uh, uh, slavery by another name, condemnation of blackness. Uh, I'm trying to look. Glenn Gould by himself and friends. The Art of Exclusion by Boleyn. The Science of Painting by Bieber. I actually never finished this one, oh, but I've cool. almost finished it. Yeah, um, yeah. Bieber made a manual on painting in 1892. Uh-huh. Uh, uh, Critique of Pure Reason, 
So, yeah, there's a bunch of stuff that right, that's so on the so shelf that I've yeah. either gone through or I'm going through again. To kind of, because that's everything. A good book should be reread. <laughs> so, sure. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. It should be readable, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, um, if it's a really good book, it's uh, you didn't get it all in the first read, you know. Right, right. So. Or what I like to do is is just you know if it's a book I love, just crack it open, sort of at random and, and read. Um, yeah, and just kind of dive into that spot. Do you read any fiction? Uh, yes. There's. I was just actually getting ready to pull this book out. I think it's called The Shelter in Sky by Paul Bowles. He's an author who I was made aware of by uh, an artist named Claudio Bravo. He's a good friend of his. And I think he wrote a foreword in a catalog of Claudio's work that I read when I was in school. And then I looked him up and found out he was this great author. So I want to reread that, but occasionally I'll read some fiction. There's not a whole lot of fiction. Life is too serious to be, you know, let me stop. This is ridiculous. (laughs) (laughs) I I don't want to be, but uh, fiction is fine. I'm, I, I, I'll pivot between that and Yates or something for poetry. So right. like when I'm painting, sometimes I'll listen to, I recently got like basically the whole catalog of Mark Twain's work. Yeah. Uh, so uh, I've been listening to some of that when I'm drawing or something okay, cool. occasionally, but it, you can only do that as much as a model would tolerate, you know? So like, <laughs> like <laughs> I mean, the, the goal is to put things on that, keep the, the model entertained, you know? Okay. Yeah. No, I wanted to ask you about that. If what, what your kind of sessions are like with your models. So are you, um, I guess that's, I mean, you sort of just answered the question, but I was going to ask you like, um, do you, you know, do you keep it pretty, pretty, uh, kind of serious or are you chatting with the models or, you know, you've got audio book on or. Well, I don't know what you're, you know, this will be interesting because yeah. other people might have a different take on it, but depending in my experience, working from the model almost every day for, <laughs> for a good long time now, yeah. uh, when you're painting a model, the tendency is for people when they're sitting still is unless there's some hardened veteran to fall asleep. Right. So I found that it's very helpful to either put something on that they can, this is, you know, see, here's a useful way that this, here's a way that you can use technology to your advantage. Instead of tracing your drawing, you can take that same computer and turn it on and allow the model to watch it and then draw the the model from life. Yeah. yeah. How about that for a bright idea? No, exactly. It's tracing off, you know, whatever is on your computer screen, you can actually use the computer screen to entertain the model while you're drawing the model. And that's the that's, way I do it a lot. I've done, so I've done a couple of, uh, I'm sort of in the middle of one right now, but I've done uh, um, so some portraits of my yeah, that's, stepson. And that's, that's something that's, that that's Bonat how, didn't have. Yeah. <laughs> none of those artists. David, they couldn't just, you know, I, I've heard, uh, not said, I've heard, I've read stories of Sargent entertaining the model by playing piano in the studio. Some of these, these artists would have like an organ or something in their studio. I don't have to do any of that. I can just turn my computer on and there they go. You can put on some podcasts. Now, granted, you might have to listen to some music you don't want to listen to, or you might have to tolerate something, some discussion on a podcast that you find particularly deplorable. (laughs) But at the same time, you're getting to draw the person from life. Yeah. So it's a, it's, a, it's a small exchange, right. and uh, it'll keep them awake, which is the task when you're That's working. That's the number one goal, at least, yeah. Yeah, to so keep them awake and to keep them uh, 
from being fidgety. And if they're watching something, if you put them, I've recently discovered that if you put a movie on that they want to see, yeah, wow, like <laughs> you have a good hour and a half or forty minutes, hour and forty minutes where they can oh without break. Um, uh, or, often, often yeah, they won't yeah, even yeah. want to break because they're what they're entertained by the movie. So right, right. The, the break is is just to break up the tedium of sitting there silently or whatever. So a lot of these guys who run model sessions, they're just torturing their models. If you if you figure out innovative ways to keep them entertained, you get more time drawing them. You can advance on your drawing more swiftly because you're not having to consistently break up because the break. Man, I'm talking at a mile a minute, but sometimes when you when you're when you get into the the heat of the session when you're actually burning, yeah. uh, that twenty you know that five minute break just for totally you lose that momentum. Oh, absolutely. Uh, so that's yeah, something for sure. You know, I'm always trying to get as much like straight time as I can with the model because there is a such thing. I, this is this is the heart. This is what we should be talking about. It's hard. It's like there is this element. This is it's there's a a, a there's a point when you're working from the model or from anything yeah. that you reach this point and it's, you're white hot. You're like Coltrane when he's been soloing <laughs> for 20 minutes. Yeah. And it's like, you, you like, you're making marks, but it's got, it's gotten beyond, it's gotten into something that's intuitive and it's beyond just the training. Right. And that's the, that's the goal is to get to that ineffable kind of stage in your art. And when you're doing that, I don't care what, somebody else thinks about what i produce i'm having a moment there yeah 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 and that's what you're living for it's like it's like playing piano it's the same thing well you know that's why i practice you you put all the you do all of the grueling practice so that you can get to this point where you're not you're not just working out a uh some sort of exercise Man, right. I keep using sort you're not working out an exercise yeah you're you're actually creating art and in the process of creating art, you're experiencing something that is ineffable. Yeah. And that's what it's really about. It's, you know, it is really a selfish quest. You know, I mean, I'm sorry to say that, but that's, I'm not actually sorry. No, no, that's no. what it's all about. No, no. You know? Uh, no. <laughs> I have a very positive view of, of, uh, of, of selfishness. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's what a... a, a I mean, what else are we all doing this for? That that's what you do. Yeah, described. you're trying to get there, and some people would try to have you believe it's, you know, I mean, well, you know, for some people it's a movement or something, but for me, it's really about uh, hopefully getting to that point where you're inspired, and hopefully it'll be inspiring to somebody else. But that is that is a that 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 is not a necessary byproduct, but it is a byproduct nonetheless. I, that's, uh, that's potentially. Uh, yeah, no, I love I love that you mentioned that. I think that's really fascinating. This idea that, and I think it's um, <laughs> you said the the movement. Some people look at it as a movement, but it's um, yeah. For me, it's about what you just described. And yeah, if a lot of other people are doing that, and we can all sort of uh, you know, um, sort of talk about that and and have a camaraderie in that, I guess that's cool. But uh, I I don't I don't spend time trying to perpetuate a movement. I guess like that's no a, no. Right. <laughs> it's about no. You can't you can't. It's about the art. It's about it's and about if you the have very this, personal experience, right? Exactly. And if you have anything very personal and idiosyncratic to say that is useful to somebody else, somebody else will notice it, and you don't have to even worry about that. Right. You just focus on trying to be the best version of yourself as you can be. 
and uh, that you can be. And then, and as a result of that, hoping that you will find some support to continue to do it. But yeah, and I guess that's you don't, where, you don't where need... a movement is is you know maybe important. I mean, you gotta we have to exist in society, and people are appreciating what we do and all of that. We we we've got to have, um, you know, you gotta have people who understand and appreciate. I guess what we do so that so. Well, if you look at her theory, all of the movements have died. Um, and so, like, if you want to do something, like, but the, the great artists who transcended those movements, who may have even been a part of them, their work has lived on. Right. So right. I, I'm not focused on a movement at all. Yeah. You know? no, that's it's a like, point. it's useless. You know, yeah. you look at, you know, you, we know a handful of the realists. We know Corbet. Yeah, like a lot of the other, a lot of his followers, we know Delacroix as romantic, right? But many of the followers in that, you know, these are just no. We know Jerome as an Orientalist, but we don't know many of the other followers in that movement, you know. So to to get caught up in a movement is to want to. It's almost like a um, argumentum ad populum. It's the idea that like by a number of heads, you can actually add an authenticity to what it is that you're doing. What you're doing as an artist needs to have an authenticity that stands on its own, aside from any kind of cosign from anybody else. Yeah. I can yeah, think sort of, point. but yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm well, going to sort of. <laughs> no, no, no. It's a fantastic point because um, <laughs> it's like, it doesn't matter if you're considered a part of this bigger thing. I mean, you as an individual still have to make paintings and sell paintings or exactly know, like you have to have you, your and you career. know what you can't you know what you will find if you have the fire in you you will find a way to make a living right i remember you know this brings this is a good segue segue to another um you know it has not always been like today this year and today i stand as a doing fairly well as an artist right. it hasn't always been that way yeah but I didn't make decisions based on what was going to be the most comfortable. I made decisions based on what I felt like my reason for being here. And when I say my reason, I say whatever I felt like were my innate, those things that were intrinsic to me, those abilities, I made my decisions based on those things and not on what seemed to be the, the most uh, convenient and comfortable thing to do. Right. And I think that any artist, especially if you're, again, if you, you know, if you're a black artist like myself, we represent, in New York, uh, like less than 6% of, of, of uh, artists represented by galleries. And oh, wow. that's the contrast with the fact that we're somewhere around 25% of the population of New York. So wow. we're underrepresented in the art world. And I have a ton of stories as a black artist, but, you know, just... <sighs> okay. Well, let me, of... let, me, let, me, um, um, let me ask you about that. So, okay. So we're talking about movements, right? Mm -hmm. a and and it doesn't. You don't have to be part of a movement. You know, you're focused on your own thing. Um, but you bring up being a black artist. Is that sort yeah. of like? I mean, are you sort of putting yourself in that sort of movement? Well, I, I'm I, I'm not putting myself in a movement. I'm acknowledging a statistic. Right. The statistic says does that, that statistic has have anything to do with you as an individual? Oh yeah, for sure. Okay. Because uh, we because doors are not open to black artists that are open to other kinds of artists. This is just a fact. Um, we represent less than six percent of the art market here in New York. The gal of gallery represented 
um, artists. Yeah. But we're 25% of the people. And so there's an underrepresentation. And I can speak to the fact that there are some obstacles that are placed in front of me that aren't placed in front of someone who's of my ethnicity. Right. Like, you know, the idea that someone might talk, start talking to me, the same gallerist who doesn't talk to other artists about some ridiculous photorealist artist who happens to be black. Yeah. He'll start representing him when he's talking to me and saying, oh, I should represent, I should move in that direction and so forth. And, and right. oh, oh, you know, uh, you, maybe you need to do the kind of thing he's doing. You need to find yeah. a gallery that will represent, that'll represent, that represents black artists. I've heard this, I have the email uh, from, uh, from galleries. So this, this is something that has happened gross. to me on more than one occasion. Yeah. But I, this, I, I was speaking to, this isn't to focus on being a black person. This is to speak to being a minority in general. If you're, if you're an artist who's working in a, a traditional way, you're a minority. Well, that's true. And, yeah, absolutely. And so you're, gonna, you're not going to find, like in the world where art is being sold for millions of dollars, you're not going to find very many people working. You're not going to find any people working like you who are making millions of dollars off of their art. Right. Or even hundreds of thousands of dollars off of their art. Right. Because you're a minority. So... If you're doing this, you can't, you, you, I would say you can't be driven by what I would consider to be filthy lucre. You can't be driven by the idea that you're going to become rich. Right. You have to be driven by something else. If that's a byproduct, then so be it. Who cares? Right. But richness doesn't bring happiness. Being able to draw does. Absolutely. So I have a happiness yeah. that, you know, some guy who's, rep who's making millions of dollars off of his horrible paintings he will never have because he doesn't know the pleasure of knowing how to draw. So that's what I'm saying. Focus on. Yeah. I'm saying focus yeah. on that and make that and make your life decisions around that. Yeah. So I ended up at one point essentially homeless and was rescued essentially by a guy, Father Mullen, who put me up in a rectory for about six months. After which I was freed from by you know more, more or less emancipated by selling a painting for about ten thousand dollars at the time. Wow. And I and at that point I was able to get my first cell phone and get an apartment. Oh and then goodness. I was How long you know, ago I was, was able this? to continue. This is some time ago. Okay. <laughs> this is some time. This is when I lived in Philadelphia. All right. But uh, wow. basically what I'm saying is I was driven to homeliness homelessness because my my um brother had died and it, I had the realization that if, you know, I was born into a housing project I didn't have anything. Yeah. Nobody knew anything about classical painting or even classical music. No one cared about that stuff. Right. Uh, I, I had the fortune of having a kindergarten teacher notice that I was drawing fingernails or something uh -huh. on people and said, oh, this kid seems to have, he's observing more in his drawings than is normal for a kid his age. So my parents, um, you know, encouraged it, brought me to the museum and so forth. And so I came up with nothing. Yeah. So when I, when I got, I remember going off to school, I sold a painting to some bishop back in Connecticut. And that was because I was getting no support to go off and study at PASA in Philadelphia. Right. But that painting that I sold enabled me to, to get up and get an apartment in Philadelphia and study at PASA. I remember working as a monitor for the class and um, a, a horrible teacher who tried to make me do a, make the class i always take it very personally because i felt like having so little money i didn't want to waste the money on a horrible education right but i remember her wanting us 
to do pointillist paintings in class. And I thought this was really absurd because I had read about Henry O'Tanner and Aiken going to the school. And I'm like, why would I sit in the class? And I was like, no, I'm not doing that. I'm going to draw the model. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and I would suffer for it because I, I never forget. Uh, she had a model who was homeless, which was another fiasco. And the lady, <laughs> there was feces or something on the, I was the oh, monitor God. for the class. So there was like feces on the, on the, uh, the drape that the model was oh. sitting on and I just refused and I'm pretty people call me OCD so it was like I, I didn't, didn't want to handle it <laughs> so I lost my monitorship and money basically yeah. you know but I say all this to say I persevered I, that was that was a lot but basically I'm saying my when I, my brother died I realized you have like you never know he didn't think he was going to die obviously he wasn't he didn't have like some long sickness so but he died suddenly. Yeah. And when I when that happened, he was a young man, and I realized, well, if I'm going to be an artist, I can't wait. I can't assume that I'm going to have 50 years to do it. Yeah, sure. And so it, it put an urgency, and some people might say unwise urgency, an, an urgency that ended up, you know, making me homeless. But it's kind of interesting how when you really pursue a thing and you're committed to it and you've shown some promise, you will find support. Right. That's the thing. And that's the thing that people don't realize. Yeah. This is the thing that isn't talked about enough. If you, if you just try to live your life comfortably, nobody will come to support you or rally around you because they, they don't, you're not doing what you have to do to show this is a guy I need to help. That's you know, a great point. but, um, yeah, sure. but if you go out on a limb, if you believe enough in your art to go out on a limb for it, if there's going to be any help that's going to come your way, it's going to come in that kind of environment. And the other thing I was, um, I was very, I had this idea, like I would always encounter people as a kid who, you know, older people, I could have done such and such. I didn't want to live my life in that way. Yeah. I want to live my life in a way where I could say I couldn't have done that. And the way I would know I couldn't have done it is that I pursued it at such a high risk yeah. that there's nothing else I could have done to have made myself an artist. And so if I don't become an artist after all of this, well, there's nothing, there's no other step. The guy is getting up at 521 and working his butt off all day. There's <laughs> nothing else he could have done to make himself a Absolutely. successful painter. Uh, that's a great, you know, so you have to work as hard to look as you at can. It. Yeah. Gosh, that's yeah. a great way. Well, to... Sorry. I'm, 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 like, you get me talking about this stuff and I like, I guess it's because I'm so passionate about this stuff because I actually live by this. Well, I'm yeah, like, absolutely. I don't have a, I don't have like a school supporting me. I don't have a gallery. Yeah. This is how I've made a living. Yeah. I've made a living by believing in everything I'm saying right here. I've done it and put it in practice. I get up, I work hard every day. I work from life. Yeah. And, and, and I'm a black artist doing this. When galleries have told me they can't sell images of black people, I've sold them to people myself. Good for you. So, well, so, if I can so what do does that, that look like? What does that look like as far as like uh, working outside of the gallery system and kind of it looks like this the work? future. It looks <laughs> oh, like absolutely. the future. Oh, I, I'm it looks like anybody who'll tell you otherwise is, is ignorant. How this is finding, a future. How are you finding clients? Like what? What's... I'm not finding them. They are finding me. <laughs> awesome. This is how it happens. This is how Excellent. it's going to happen in yeah. the future. If galleries are going to work with you, they're going to have to work with you. Right. But you don't have to beat down. I, I actually compiled an exhaustive or at least as much as I knew at the time. This is some years ago, five yeah. years ago or so, uh, a list of galleries in New York. And I sent 
every morning I would get up, and this is while I was working for that horrible artist. Uh-huh. I would get up and I would send emails with my work in it to, I can't remember, I think the number was like seven or six a morning. Right. And I was just going right down the list. <laughs> and yeah. and an idea was to yeah. be systematic, is to say, okay, the likelihood is that most of these people are going to turn me down, but if I send it to everyone, I will have exhausted all of that, and I can say that I, there's no way I could have gotten a gallery. But if there is somebody who's sympathetic to my work, they will see it because I will have sent them an email. So I did this. Right. People say, never send emails to galleries. I did this, and this is how I got my first show in Chelsea. Yeah. So people say, you don't get your work. Don't listen There's to people a lot of bad stuff who've out, never man. done it themselves. Yeah, no yeah, kidding. Don't, it's just, never it's listen to stuff. them. There's so many things like that where, um, you know, you just, it, it's just, what else you got to do? I mean, like, I don't know. There's just so much, sorry, I'm kind of stumbling around here, but there's so much bad advice that I feel like so much of that stuff that they say, never do that, never do that. It's like, well, why? I don't, it's like, just consider it a source. It's usually not a good Consider reason. a source. Consider it a source. Yeah. Most of the people who are saying never do that are somebody who's never done it. So how would they know that you should never do it? Right. There's this strange sort of orthodoxies kind of um, yeah. come up Well, I, I just consider myself an of... outsider. So I said, you know what? I'm not going to even listen to any of that kind of thing. I, I have to – because after sending – after speaking to enough galleries and having them tell me the whole black thing and whatever else, That's I said, so okay, weird. I'm just going to find my own way, you know? Yeah. So I'm, I found my own way. But th- I, I wasn't saying that to say that that was some sort of – it was an achievement because I got a solo show exhibition in Chelsea as a result of that. Well, no, it's which was a huge you achievement. You don't have to work within that system. But it's it's awesome. You don't have to work with. It. You don't have to do it at all. Yeah. But you know, I, I came to realize even after that that you don't actually need the, the we don't need this anymore. A gallery was the way to get your eyes in front of potential patrons. Right. We have the internet. Right. Now, there's a difference between seeing your art online or on a computer or a phone or something and seeing it in person. Yeah. But you will find that people will approach you. Well, I have found that people have approached me nonetheless because it's just like people who make really stupid arguments against the veracity and truth of a photo. (laughs) There's a reason why you have a license with a, a photo ID because it says something true about what you're looking at. I mean, give me a break. Right. So it's, it's like there is something to be said for it. Now, again, I'm not uh, even make an argument for a photo realist, <laughs> but I'm, I'm making a, a larger statement here. Like th- that when a photo is taken of your work, is it has some sort of quality to it, there is something that you're going to see in it. And this is why, you know, you can find people that will see your work online and say, I love it. And they've never seen it in person, you know, because something is translating in the photo and it's, and it's some essence of some part of the essence of the image, you know, right. even if all of the texture isn't captured, et cetera. And therefore you can sell your work. I'm not saying you can, you will. This is what I've done. You know, so you've had, you've um, had a lot of people approach you based on seeing your work online. Uh, indeed. Indeed. Interesting. Okay. Uh, indeed. Like I've had people, uh, in, like, like my, I'll never forget <laughs> my patron who died. I met her. Uh, she had lost. This is another. So you can always feel free to rein me in. I mean, I have like, I'm probably <laughs> chock full of these stories, <laughs> but at one point, uh, 
okay, so remember, I told you, I think I almost approach everything in life in a certain kind of uh, systematic way. Yeah. So I was, you know, I run into all of these dead ends with these galleries with the race thing. And then there's clearly a, it, the art world is super segregated. <laughs> it's very segregated. Just go to a museum. Look at the disproportionate amount of European art you see compared to anything else. It's like this is just an institutionalized version of the world itself. But anyway, that's a whole other thing. <laughs> but um, so when you go to, but you know what finds its way in a museum? There's a this is this is a stratified hierarchical sort of system. I keep saying sort of. <laughs> this is a stratified right. hierarchical system, without the sort of. Okay, so here we have um. <laughs> We have uh, the, the individual patron who patronizes the gallery. If the gallery says, I'm not going to show art with black people, et cetera, in it, or black artists, then it doesn't get bought by the patron. The patron's collection is, again, donated or something to the museum. It doesn't end up on the museum's walls, right? So this is, there's a clear connection between a certain kind of discrimination and a lack of representation. This is why if I take some of my black friends to the museum, which I've done on occasion, uh -huh. uh, I remember one girl telling me, all right, I'm tired of seeing all these white people. <laughs> like, it's just, this is just what happens. Like, if you, if you want more diversity, you have, to, if you want to be, uh, if you want to correct some of the problems with the 19th century, that's one, one way to start is to just kind of diversify. And, you know, there's great Asian realists. There's, there's some black guys who out here are doing things, yeah. you know, just try to diversify your gallery staple and your museum staple. That's, that's a advertisement or whatever. But <laughs> aside from that, okay. So this relates to my systematic approach and how I found the patron. Right. I said, okay. Huh. The one who passed away that you that you mentioned. Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. And so there's there's no, you know, you you can't, like you're a realist, but then the the galleries that show realism don't show black images by black people of black people. So so okay, what are you gonna do? Yeah. Hmm. All right, I'm gonna find black collectors. Right. Hmm. Then you find, you find the, the auction house, which is like one of the main galleries in New York that deals with art by, of, by black artists, of black people. It's actually owned by some white guy who I had a conversation, but he kind of blew <laughs> me up because I'm, I'm not second, sec, was it a secondary market guy. Um, oh. So basically you have to be uh, a guy who's already proven that you can make a certain amount of money. In right. other words, I'm not right. contemporary. I'm too contemporary as well. Right. He needs to be able to so, resell based on your based on your yeah because they're they're not really a lot of these auction they're not they have they have no concern for aesthetics they're it's all monetary oh it's all like you yeah, know it's all, it's all well and all, all that stuff is is based around uh art as as an investment yeah exactly yeah. so m mostly you know sometimes people you know again i'm always weary of uh like sort of uh or I keep saying sort of, <laughs> but uh, false dichotomies, false antithesis. Sure. You know, so not everybody who's buying as an investment doesn't actually appreciate right. it. No, that's true. Yeah, great. Point. You know, great point. So, um, but needless to say, I'm I find a gallery. Uh, uh, I'm saying uh, too much. I'm going to gather my thought. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, right. So I find I, I I realize I need to find uh, patrons. Yeah who see if I can connect with them. This is one of the benefits of the internet. So I said, okay, 
I'm going to have to eat. So I found this one lady. Uh, and, and when I found her, there was an article about her collection in old magazine by Oprah. Oh, okay. And she had this huge, beautiful home and this beautiful, and then almost the next, this is on Google, almost the next lying down, tear down, was an article that happened maybe a couple months after that article. It was about how, I think it was in the New York Times at the time, about how her collection had burned up in a fire. Oh, my. So apparently oh, wow. she had this article done on her, uh-huh. and then not very long after it, the whole collection was lost through fire. Turns out it, the, apparently there were some uh, linseed oil-soaked rags or something from an artist or something in her on her porch and it, you know, they can spontaneously oh ignite and she lost millions of dollars of art. Oh, my so, gosh. okay. So that, I know this is like a crazy story, but basically what happens is I get the idea. I need to find this lady yeah. and I need to donate my best painting to her. Oh, interesting. because that's right. the kind of lady that you need to like, you need to invest in that lady because she really, was into art and she had invested all these millions of dollars in art and she would appreciate it because this is a time where she lost her whole collection. Now I was late to the game because I, I, I can't remember how long after the article I, I approached her. Yeah. So I approached her on Facebook and uh, sent her a message. But if you're not friends with somebody on Facebook, uh, often they don't see your messages. Okay. So she never saw the message. Oh. Needs to say, Oh, Fast forward maybe a year or two or whatever it was, she saw the painting I was trying to give her at an art fair in Miami because the gallerists had taken it down there. Just sort of and totally wanted to random? Buy it. Totally random. Wow. And she wanted to purchase the painting. And, and, and when the guy said, I got this lady, she's like, wealthy <laughs> black collector, she wants to buy her painting. I, I said, is it hey, Cooper Kayford? She said, yeah. I was like, this is crazy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I had this. I was like, this is insane. This is a great coincidence. These are kind of coincidences that happen that if you're very narcissistic, you feel like things are being rigged for you. But uh, <laughs> I kind of don't think that's the case at all. <laughs> you know, I'm just too self-deprecating to actually think that that's actually how it works. But it was a very, um, that's, it was serendipitous. Yeah, it's amazing. So needless to say, she not only didn't buy that painting, but she bought like five other paintings. Oh, wow. Uh, and, like, I made the most in one day that I'd probably ever made. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and I, the funny thing was, uh, she had this uh, magnum opus of mine at the time uh-huh. uh, that it was, like, actually, at the time, I used to work with photos and stuff more because I worked a 12-hour night shift for that terrible artist again. Oh, my god! And so I would use, you know, that's everything. Some of these guys who are talking non-photo, like, I, I'm a non-photo guy, right? right? But some of you guys are talking from privilege. You need to just relax. <laughs> because some people are real artists that are dedicated, and they have to, like, they don't come from a place of any privilege at all. They, they don't have money for models and stuff, but they still want to draw, and they want to do what they well, want to yeah, do. So, I mean, right. Absolutely. So you got to You have to. You have to recognize that, like maybe the uh, the the advantages you might have to do something, somebody else might not have, but that shouldn't stop them from making art. So that's. I think that's yeah. a necessary thing to state here in the story no, because yeah, I am as. Com- what do you think? No, no, that's it's a it's a it's a great point. Yeah, because I'm yeah. I'm as committed to working from life as anybody can see, 
now that I am in a position where I can do that as anybody, but I've always been in this position. Right. But some of you guys have been born into this position. You've always had money. You've, you've had money around you. You don't have to worry about what some people who grew up in a project like me have to worry about, you know? Right. So that's a whole other situation. I have to say that because I, because some people I feel like have a total blind spot to, you know, don't ask a fish yeah. about water, you know? Right, 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 so, Needless to say, um, there was this magnum opus painting I had uh, of, of my grandmother's couch that was covered in plastic because, again, she came from a, a very impoverished background, and a lot of black grandmas would do this sort of thing because they didn't want you to spill something on the couch because <laughs> right. the couch represented this acquisition for them, you know? So yeah. I did a painting of it because of... Uh, of the social implications and its emotional meaning to me, which incidentally all art has some social, this, I guess I'm being a little preachy here, but I feel like all art has some social implication. Sure. You're going to like, it's all conceptual. This is a, this is a, again, another false dichotomy that either you're a conceptual artist or you're not a conceptual artist. Yeah. Underlying, no, anytime, anytime you put a picture down on a canvas is telling some sort of, it's got Story. a concept. There's so, there's Orientalism, romanticism, yeah. like all of this stuff. Right, and the History way it's painting, painted. Yeah, it, it, right. It's all conceptual. It's conceptual yeah. first. In fact, actually, let me go on a little excursus here and say sure, sure. we need more diverse casts in cast rooms. There's no reason that I should only be drawing European-looking people <laughs> when I'm in school learning how to draw. As if as though I can only learn how to do tonality to render tonality from a European looking bus. This is ridiculous. And it's not as though we don't have 19th century examples of people like Charles Cordier, who, who, who sculpted Asians and blacks and all kinds of other people that we could actually cast and let people draw from. Yeah. But we've chosen to lock ourselves in this period anachronistically and make people draw Europeans. And because of it, our schools are super segregated. And it's like all white people at these academies. Oh. It's ridiculous. Or Asians. Or people who've bought into a, a sort of Eurocentrism. Right. It's ridiculous. We it doesn't have to be that way. You don't have to learn how to, to render tonality by rendering tonality from a European head. This is absurd. I mean, that's that's, yeah. a, that's another excursion. But anyway, <laughs> so funny. where was I? Where was I at with that? Where was I at in the middle of this story? I kind of got lost. I got a little bit lost too. We were talking about oh oh your uh uh your, your magnum opus the the couch uh, the okay yeah back couch. to that okay so <laughs> she bought she bought this painting um and she bought several other ones and the gallerist who introduced me to uh or introduced my work to her uh -huh. here in Florida would never pass her info on to me because uh -huh. of the conflict of interest, at least yeah, he, he saw it he, in uh, passing that. Right. So, which he wouldn't have had to worry. If he knew the kind of guy I was, he would never have to worry about it. I would have cut anything I made. But needless to say, so we have to fast forward at least another year or two before I was able to meet her. I was in a museum show at the African American Museum in Philadelphia. Uh -huh. And uh, uh, she was on a panel discussion for the show. So it had all these other artists. And when I saw she was on a panel, 
uh, I said, I'm going to Philadelphia to meet this lady. Yeah, definitely. Because <laughs> I have to thank her for changing my life and buying so many of my paintings and making me the most. Well, so how did so you far. even know if the, the, the gallerist didn't want to give you um, her information? I knew you... who she was. Okay. I just couldn't contact, you know, it's not, you can't just go online and get the number to a multimillionaire. No, I know. Because I, I don't even know who, I don't even know who owns my paintings. Like, I don't even know their name. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I knew her because remember when I was on the phone, he said, I got this lady, I guessed who it was because I had oh, okay. sent her an email on Facebook. Okay. And he said, yeah, that's her. Uh, so I yeah. knew who she was. Okay, I just gotcha. had no way to contact her. Right. So when I, when I saw this opportunity, Thankfully, I seized it and traveled to Philadelphia, which is a rare thing for me to do because I'm in my studio working every day. Yeah. I actually went there and met her, and we hit it off so well. She drove me back to my, my back to New York oh, from awesome. Philadelphia to my home. She lives in Washington D.C., so she she stopped here to drop me off. Oh wow! But I, the whole time we were talking and catching yeah. up, and I was able to. And she came upstairs. Now this is a lady who was fairly sick, and like she had some hip problem i believe at the time uh -huh. and i live on the second floor so she walked up to my apartment slash studio and it was teeming with work yeah. because even though i didn't have many people buying my work i got up every day at 521 and i worked on my work every day yeah. <laughs> for the whole day yeah and it was there were tons of paintings and what she said is i'll have that one that one, oh, that one, uh -huh. and I was like, "Wow, <laughs> it was just, it was amazing. Yeah. It was just like an amazing thing." But I always say this as a, I won't say cautionary because that's the wrong word, but as a, it's it's somewhat of a parable to say that hey, you you know you have to work on your thing as if as though there's going to be a show or there's going to be a patron to buy, it, even if you don't see it happening. Right. You just have to you yeah. have to trust that yeah. if you build it opportunity because you can be the greatest artist in the world if you don't make a painting no one will ever know that right so you have to be making your paintings well you have and, to if, be working and if you and if you love it you know you can't you can't stay away from it too i mean yeah but no i i i need to say it the way i'm saying it because okay. some people aren't passionate enough about what they're doing yeah you can't just simply just you have to paint like you have an art show coming up right. you have to work on it really hard every day and when, when an opportunity comes, you'll have a plethora of work to give to someone. Right. You'll, have a, you, you'll be able to show work. You'll be able to show. I, I learned that because when I, that first guy who I got to show with, he bit the bait from the email. I'm going back to something I said earlier about sending emails to all these galleries. Right, right. And then I got my solo show. Yeah. He bit the bait, and then I met up with him, but I didn't have any work. Yeah. Because I was working 12 hours a night for this other sucky artist. But I remember him saying, <laughs> Who he said, what did he say? He said, you don't have any inventory. Where's your inventory? Yeah. And that stuck with me. So I was on a mission and a quest to produce inventory. Right. Because although he, he saw promise in the few pieces he saw, enough to respond to me and eventually to give me an art show, he needed to see that I could consistently produce something. Right. So I had to get back in the studio and do that. And so from that point on, I made it my mission to always be working on a painting every, and not only to be working on one, to be working on as many paintings as is humanly possible in a given day. And that's right. just what I do because I'm a painter, right. you know? And by adopting that strategy, when this patron came to my studio, she had a lot of work she could buy and she certainly did buy work. 
you know, that's, that's and that opened other doors. Yeah. But uh, gosh, so that's <laughs> I feel like I've <laughs> I've poured out. No, I can't believe I've said awesome, so much. Man. No, it's such a great. <laughs> yeah, it's such a great. Story. I, but I hope somebody else is inspired because this isn't really. Oh, I know I've said a lot of things about my own. Uh, story as a black painter, etc. But this isn't about being a black artist. This is just about being uh, an artist who's not about the BS and who believes in who believes in observational or representational painting in a world that's not always sympathetic to it, where it's often a liability. So how do you get forward? Do you try to like make a movement? Do you try to galvanize support with a certain group of uh, patrons, no, you just work hard at what you do passionately <laughs> and it'll open its own door for you. I yeah. trust. I, I came from nothing. Yeah. So that's amazing. I shouldn't say came in the past tense. I come from nothing. Right. So, uh, you know, if I can do this, certainly some of you guys who have a little more advantage than I had certainly should be able to do it regardless of your, uh, your background, you know, <clears throat> but you have to like stop making boring paintings and start really focusing on uh, uh, whatever it is that you find beautiful about things. And, and, yeah. and like yeah. my grandmother would say, like, you eat the meat and spit out the bones. If I hear somebody speaking stuff that I know is self-evidently BS, I'm just not going to take it, you know? <laughs> um, just have enough sense to, to see, like, have enough sense to be a critic of things that are just senseless anachronisms. Like, like I said, like the cast hall and a lot of these academies. Yeah. And and see that, hey, you know, if if you're an Asian American or Asian period that's here studying or you're studying at some why should you sit around just painting a bunch of white people? Paint some of your own people in your own culture. It's well, like me, it's just me, sensible. I, I want to push back on that a little bit. Like why do you think it matters yep. so much? It matters a lot because there's underrepresentation of other people in museums and in galleries. That's why it matters. And like you I think, say, you when think you're in it a comes do- down to it comes down to the artists, um, you know, who are black or Asian or whatever, who's working today, being able to get their work out there. You think there's? I'm, I'm there's not. A I'm, not I'm not. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not going to tell any Asian or black person what they have to paint or a white person for that matter. But just understand that when you have a dominant culture, right? Like there's an assumption of what is normal and normative sure. that I just do not accept. Okay. You know, I don't accept that the protagonist always has to be a white woman or something. Well, yeah. Sure. You know, I just, I, and I don't think that it's like, it's revolutionary to not accept that. I think that's just self evident. It does. There's no reason for there to be such a monolithic presence of one racial group in realism. That's absurd. Oh, no, so, totally agree. Uh, sure. So as a black artist who grew up around people who look like my aunts and uncles, I'm painting them. Right. And yeah, actually, this is, there's some other stuff that I can say about that. I can say that during the 19th century, it was so horrible and prejudiced to black artists that Henry O. Tanner, Henry Osawa Tanner, had to move to Paris where he found some more re- reception for his work than he found here in America. And there's a reason why there's an underrepresentation of black artists in this tradition. And a lot of it had to do with racism. But what happened in the 20th century was that art, the art world in general moved into modernism. Right. And by the time we were culturally aware enough about, you know, our own inveterate racism, et cetera, I'm talking us as America Uh and willing to let people into 
uh, into the schools of other races. And you remember desegregation only, it was like the sixties, right? Yeah. Uh, it, before there was wide enough spread desegregation, we're talking like, so you're literally almost in the end of the sixties, seventies, there was no real tradition of, of, um, there wasn't a solid enough tradition of representational painting in schools to even produce a generation of black painters who had the competence to predict, uh, to, um, to depict their own people. And that, that's the reason why you find that it's pretty bankrupt in the black community. We don't even have a tradition. We have um, Charles Ethan Porter and Henry Osawa Tanner. So in an era that we're in now, we, there's, we, we can actually do this now as a black artist. We can have more of us, but some of what needs to be done away with is this sort of, I keep saying sort of, I'm sorry that I keep, I keep <laughs> noticing worry about too, it. but uh, we, we can, we can actually correct some of the past and yeah. the way we try to diversify things in this generation. So there's no reason to just revive all of the old tropes along with all of their anachronistic baggage. Yeah, no, that, so that's, that's, that's right. Yeah, yeah. That's, 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 that's a, I, I think as a black painter, I have an obligation to say it because I've noticed it my entire life. Right. You know, right. and it's not because I don't admire paintings by Alma Tadema and other guys, of course. And of, and it's not that I don't, but you know, it's no reason why I should be looking. I, I recently saw a painting by someone in one of these academies, and it's like an Orientalist depiction of a black person. It's like this is ridiculous. Right. We're in the sure. 21st century. You know. I mean, yeah, we have to look to those depictions from the 19th century to see anything that comes anywhere close to a dignified depiction of a black person. Often it's not even that. But why should we perpetuate that here in the 21st century? No, we need to correct that stuff, you know? But would you would you go so far as to say that that stuff shouldn't be shown in museums? No, 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 I'm not. Okay, yeah. good. I, that's, yeah. That's like, that's a, that's a whole other discussion. I'm not, yeah, no, it's like, right. I, I, I'm more concerned with artists who are living now and institutions that are around now and how we can make the future better right. than the past. It, you, you're, there are always going to be blind spots culturally, any given generation. If uh, humanity doesn't end up, starving to death or something in another 200 years, they'll be able to look at us and we'll look very ye olde and old fashioned then, right? <laughs> like it's okay. very possible. So like I, I, you know, I'm not, you know, but I just, I'm just pointing out what I see as obvious uh, uh, blind spots that aren't always, uh, they're sometimes subconscious, you know? So, so like a lot of these, a lot of things I'm criticizing, it might sound like, oh, he's really bashing this. Uh, I'm not saying that everybody is self-conscious. Like when you're in a dominant culture in any society, you have blind spots just by the virtue of your dominance. You know, it's like you know. I recently was watching a, a lion documentary, and a what uh, a lion document, a documentary on lions. Oh, okay. Lions. And uh, you know, from the lion's perspective, the survival of their cubs is paramount, right? But right from my perspective as the person looking at the documentary that was dealing with the larger contextual sort of thing, it's sort of the, the encompass the whole uh, zeitgeist of, of the area that the, the lions were living in. Then you see that, you know, the lion survival comes at the expense of, you know, the antelope or whatever, you know? Sure. So you're able, like 
they might have a blind spot to when they kill the baby, you know, deer or whatever, what that does to that family unit, right? Because they're focused on their own survival. That's just, I'm just speaking about the nature of blind spots. And it often takes somebody who's not part of a dominant culture to point that out. You see what I mean? So, but it doesn't mean that it can be fairly, it doesn't mean that people who are engaging in exclusionary practice are doing so with a, uh, malicious right. intent. Yeah, right, they, right. they just often. Yeah, and I think that's a, it, I think know? that's an important thing um, to <clears throat> just sort of dealing with people. I, I think it's important to um, afford um, afford other people that sort of. Uh, I said sort of too. Uh, <laughs> that that. Um, oh gosh. What's the right word? I guess uh, I don't know. Maybe generosity or just get benefit of the doubt. I guess that that it's charity. It's charity. charity. You want to have a charitable reading of sure. other people. No, that's that's yeah. great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I, and so that's... none of none of what I'm saying is, is none of my critiques are coming without that. Although if I say it passionately, people might assume that, which I say almost everything I say about art when I say things passionately. So, <laughs> so, so but no, it's like, I, I'm not assuming that everybody, although there are actors who are being malicious, who are being racist, right. like some of the gallerists who I've dealt with, Oh sure. you know, but, um, sure. but not everybody's like that. Right. I think most of these people in these institutions, they're just really interested in preserving and passing on actual skill to another generation of artists, you know? It's just, I'm just saying that certain things can be done in a way that are more inclusive, which can end up diversifying um, your student body and, and it can end up having an effect of making you guys relevant in a way that you never even anticipated. So there, there might be a, I guess, sure. it, yeah, no, it might have sounded like. I, I, you know, it, it never even crossed my mind. I mean, to your point, you know. Yeah. Like, I mean, a lot of arguments you know people are making they feel like oh this stuff isn't being noticed by and it's like well one of the ways you guys can stand out is by not just repeating history which is super european dominated art if you i mean i don't know if you've noticed but some of the hoopla in modern art uh in contemporary art circles has to do with you know the depiction of people from different races and like people are interested in that but People in academic situations, I'm talking, you know, uh, Italians and, and so forth, yeah. they uh, they tend to be really slow with that kind of thing, I, uh, I mainly mean, because... I, I don't know. I want to I I challenge that a little bit because I think, I mean, I've seen a broad array of, of, of different, you know of models from different backgrounds coming into modeling. Yeah, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not speaking, I'm talking about things like caste, and yeah. I'm, I'm not, you know, like I'm talking aesthetic. I'm not, I'm not just talking just like, uh, I mean, they've always painted black people in these places. I mean, you can see that in the 19th century, but I, I'm talking about, I like there, I, I don't want to like start name calling, but like, uh, there are depict, like you do see things where you'll see that like people titles like gangsta and so forth. it's like, I don't uh, need to see that. It's ridiculous. Yeah, it's offensive. I, I know, I know what you know? you're talking about. It's offensive. Yeah. It's like, stop it. Like right. just, just actually don't be so tone deaf. Open your eyes. You'll yeah. see that. Like there are like, you will see why um, you are actually living in somewhat of a ghetto in a sense, like, you know, <laughs> ironically, yeah. you're living in an academic ghetto where, 
you know, you're preserving a certain kind of tradition along with a lot of it's anachronistic, just kind of, uh, I, I don't, I don't want to sound uncharitable, so I won't say it, but, um, basically there are ways that you can, uh, you can kind of, you can, you can diversify and find new ways of, of depicting things and new people to depict. And right. I'm not saying like, I'm not saying, Oh, uh, white people should be painting black people. And so, and I'm not, hopefully nothing that I'm saying is coming all across that way. I'm just saying what I'm even speaking to what I experienced when I was in the Academy, you know, yeah. it was a, quite a segregated place. This is just a fact. I mean, it's, it's, it's an interesting point. There are, um, you know, when I was studying, I mean, I can count on probably, not more than three fingers. Uh, yeah. You know, the 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 other black artists that were there studying. Um, yeah. That's an interesting thing. Um, but I guess yeah, it goes kind of goes back to your what you mentioned earlier about. Um, I, I, well, people will feel like people are going to feel if they don't feel if they feel excluded, they're not likely to participate. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And that's just what, that's just one way that certain things can be like, you think about how your computer or any device you have, there's constantly an update. It seems like as soon as you update it, there's another update. But the idea is to make, it's to constantly improve on the technology and to make it more efficient. Uh-huh. Well, we shouldn't, pretend that we reached a high watermark in the 19th century when it comes to this sort of tradition or whatever, and that we just have to basically live in that era and it can't be improved upon. Right. You know, and I think like uh, one of the small ways we can improve on it is just to just diversify our cat collections. Sure. Sure. You know, that's a very simple improvement. You can't even buy these cats because they're not in demand. So there's nowhere to get them, but you know, there are people who can make that happen, and right. that that would be a good thing because then you will be teaching people at your school that classical or quote unquote ideal beauty isn't European. It's it can be you can find a certain kind of uh, classical ideal in a, a lot of different kinds of features that people have. Yeah, that's and there's a way to do that. You know, and you don't have to be exclusionary right, in your practice. Right. So uh, I I kind of intentionally calmed myself down and slowed my pace so that I'm not misunderstood in what I'm saying. But it's an important thing to be said. Sure, it's important. Yeah, you know I don't. Now, if anybody thinks that what I'm saying is inaccurate, all you have to do is just go look at the the receipts are right there <laughs> online. You know, just go online and look. Yeah, no, look look no, look look at look at the fact that you many of these schools they have very few graduates that are like black even if they're in cities where there are all these black people, you know? Yeah. yeah. So, um, and why is that the case? Why is that, why is the school not appealing to this particular demographic? Well, do you think, do you think that it's, it's up to, I mean, do you think a school, any given atelier or academy or whatever has an obligation to try to attract a certain type of student? Yes. Okay. Interesting. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> uh, to me it's like uh, so here's my take is 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 you know, I, I think the people that are into this are just going to be into that whoever yeah but whatever that's, color that's, they that's, come in whatever you know and, yeah that's and, and that, that's but, that's another 
that's an assumption that's coming from within a dominant culture. Like that's because you're just assuming whatever is on the in the cast hall to be normative. No, no, but it has nothing to do with the cast hall. I'm just saying people who are. Who I'm are, using I'm using the cast hall as a, a point of illustration. I feel like I feel like my my point is hyperbolized in the cast hall. I get I get you I get you, but I guess it's, so. I'm using it as I'm not saying that I'm not saying it ends at the cast hall, but I'm saying that's a place that you know you can see you, you know like uh, uh, when you say they have an obligation, we don't have an obligation to do anything as an artist, right? But if we want to to advocate for a better world, we should do certain things. We should be try we should try to be as inclusive to people as we can. This goes for blacks and whites or whoever, you know. Sure. So uh, well, you shouldn't be. We, well, let me let me let me put it this way: you should certainly, mm-hmm. absolutely, not be exclusionary. Exactly. Exactly. Right. But I and I think that sometimes that than... happens by virtue of a subconscious um, exclusion. Right. You know, like in other words, it doesn't have to be done uh, consciously. You know, you can subconsciously reinforce. Like, so you think something okay. like something like a, a very European-looking cast hall is sort of unconsciously exclusionary. As def- by default, it is. Yeah, for sure. But I mean, they would say, yeah, this is classical art. This is Greco-Roman art, and it's like, yeah. But then you do have depictions of other people within this tradition that you just choose not to put in your cast hall. Right. You see what I mean? Yeah. Right. So that that choice is being made, and it's being made for a reason at some point, and at some point it's just perpetuated because it's tradition. You see what I mean? Sure. So sure. you sense. have to make an attempt to think outside of a uh, – I, I don't want to say – because sometimes I feel like people use the phrase outside of a box. And then that ends up being a box. They're boxed in by <laughs> being outside of the box, you know. Right, so I don't right. want to say that, but you, 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 you have to challenge yourself. I mean, I do this all the time with things. Yeah. You know, like, or, right, right, I'm gonna. I, I know this is like I'm. I, I hate going down this road, but I'll, I'll do it anyway. Like, <laughs> let's do it. You know, in certain circles, it's just assumed that you know black people can't be racist. You know. Um, right. I don't accept that. I don't either. I don't accept that. Right. <laughs> but um, I'm not going to get into a long discussion about that. But I mean, I'm sure you've heard this sort of rhetoric. Oh, absolutely. And it's like, yeah. uh, like, so you can be in a context where it's comfortable to say certain things, and uh, and you can say them unchallenged and stuff. But it doesn't mean that because you're part of a culture where that's dominant and that's acceptable in that culture that you have to accept that. You can challenge things even if they work to your benefit. Because you know what I mean, like oh, it's yeah, beneficial sure, sure, for, sure. Yeah. for you to see yourself reflected through the whole cast hall. But is this is this helpful if I'm trying to reach out to other kinds of people? If I want to see diversity, if I want to see growth, you know, if I want to like see that the Orientalism of the 19th century had its problems, was problematic at times, you sure, know, sure. that we shouldn't just speak about, you know, who did that. Uh, who was I uh, speaking of before? Damier, who was a just a total racist piece of crap. Uh-huh. <laughs> like all you have to do is just do the research. Yeah. Look, look at the depictions of the Haitian president or that he he made, or prime minister or whatever he was. Oh wow! This when... is like he's a horrible racist. It's yeah. online. All you have to do is look it up. But when when you see people praising people 
who were horrible racists, what is that saying to people who they were racist against, that people group? You see, so you can, you can appreciate the, te- the um, technical brilliance, et cetera. Like, what did he say? Wisdom resides in the heart of the wise, but she also makes herself known among fools. In other words, even a foolish racist can have great skill, potentially. Right, right. So I can appreciate, I can, like my grandmother says, I can eat the meat and spit out the bones. Yeah. And I can critique it. Yeah. I can look at Orientalist paintings and say, they're exoticizing these people, and that's problematic. But I can still appreciate the the technical brilliance of the mm-hmm. of the painting itself. Right, 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 right. And I and, and and I can try to correct some of those problems in the future by creating institutions that are um, not so Eurocentric, and by realizing that you can teach uh, quote unquote classical ideals without perpetuating a European uh, ethnocentrism. Sure. Sure. Which sounds almost oxymoronic to some people. Well, I mean, if if you're going to get uh, very technical about those terms, I guess. Yeah, but I mean, but like what I'm saying, but that's why at the front end of this conversation, I talked about the elasticity of these terms in, in general. Right. It's like, like these people are employing classicism or classical, but often it doesn't have any reference to the 5th century BC. Yeah, yeah. yeah. In Greece. Yeah, well done. Yeah, true. Sure. So anyway, that's, that's uh, so. I guess there was a rhyme or reason to some of this stuff, right? <laughs> <laughs> like that's why I wanted to. But anyway, I I didn't want to. I actually was hoping to avoid a lot of racial talk because often I remember when I gave a, a talk at the Philadelphia Museum. Uh, uh, when I was interviewed for the website, they initially wanted me to talk about my depiction of blacks, and I actually. Right took offense in it and I didn't want, and I didn't discuss it. And I said, I'm not going to deal with that question because my paintings are about beauty. They're not about black people. Yeah. No. And and they're and I think it goes back to, you know, painting, um, each individual artist has to sort of go deep and, 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 and put forth what, you know, what's really inspiring you or, or what you're really. Yeah. And, um, but we just, we just have to get to a place where we don't talk to minority artists and make, and, and, uh, and render their artwork parochial by quarantining them, quarantining them to a political conversation. No, I, I so, agree. I agree. Like when you, when we like, uh, who am I thinking? When I went to Sergeant exhibition here in New York, uh-huh. he just talked about his technical brilliance. It's just assumed like his stuff was as influenced by his race and class as anybody, but you did, that wasn't discussed at all. They just talked about aesthetics, right? And sure, you know, um, you. But it's it, like I've brought, I've introduced these themes into this conversation, for instance, because they're almost necessary. I mean, in order to correct them, you almost have to address the elephant in the room, and then you can move beyond it, you know. But um, right. yeah, there's a sense in which any true artist wants his stuff to be. Uh, judged on its aesthetic merit almost solely, you know, but we, we do realize that none of this stuff is, uh, that is kind of what I referred to you before. There's a, there's a concept, there's political, there, like all of those things play a role in, in the art, you know, it's just that certain groups of people, they choose to emphasize that at the expense and to the, and to violence, to everything else about the artist, you know, right? No, no, that's 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 why I was sort of drawn. That's why I love your work is that 
it's it's about um I mean to me I was I was just attracted to the painting. I was it was just mm-hmm. like this guy's a great painter. Oh, thanks man. You know, I mean and um uh, you know, I mean I think you have every right to paint paint all black people or all whatever. Mm-hmm. But uh, so I guess alternatively um, you know, mm-hmm. anybody else would have every right to, let's say there's a white guy and he only wants to paint white people. I mean, <laughs> that, that makes, that makes so much, it makes so much sense to me, you know, like yeah. I, I, you know, it's like, uh, yeah, I, I, you know, I, I fear that some people think, and this is only based on my certain experiences I've had, but they think that there's a certain kind of, uh, aversion to white people or militants <laughs> because of the nature of my paintings. Yeah. I'm only saying this based on my, my experiences, but, uh, no, that's, that, that's not all. I mean, uh, like I, you know, this conversation is an unavoidable conversation in America. Uh, oh, you know? absolutely. Yeah, so, sure. so, and I think, but, but I, I, would, think, I, I guess my point is that like, like, it shouldn't um like people should be you should be able to paint what you want to paint and and, and it's exactly not, it's not anyone's business unless they want to uh you know deal with you unless they want to buy your paintings yeah. or they want to you know yeah, what I mean yeah, it's like, yeah. like you shouldn't be um you shouldn't have to answer for it i guess is my point like it's, ideally you shouldn't but you know it's interesting because in the world like I, i'm talking experience in the real world that i've had yeah i can't speak for i can't say that this is true for every person but i can say that i've had the experience with gallerists where they would comment on the race of the people i was depicting on their inability to sell which is a lie it's just not true there's no way i've been able to sell what i've been able to sell myself and you're an institution that's set up to sell paintings and you couldn't do it but you've just chosen not to because you thought you couldn't do it right um yeah. The lady who sold my painting when I lived at that rectory, right? Uh-huh. Uh, her her gallery, she set up in the 60s. She was a white lady. She was a Jewish woman. Uh-huh. And um, she sold artwork by black people of blacks. And people told her she would never, she would go out of business. She was in business for like 40, 50, 40 years or something like yeah. that. Yeah. Something like 50 years. And she made a good living. Um, because... There was this idea there that she couldn't sell image, and she had tons of clients. She sold my painting within a week after I put it in for ten thousand dollars. <laughs> That's awesome. So like, so I mean, it's just, yeah, it's just, it's just a lie, you know. It's just a lie that's perpetuated by racism, is what it is. Right. Um. And and it has like so in the real world, it actually does affect why because if she wasn't willing to take a chance on my art. I wouldn't have sold it. Sure. And sure. I wouldn't have gotten out of that rectory. I would have been homeless. Right. Right. So that's a real world, um, effect of racism on an artist's life. Right. You know? Right. So that's the, that's the reason why I guess, you know, it's like, Oh, why do you sound passionate? Because these things aren't just ideological. They actually affect people's ability to make a living and they affect what you see on the walls and museums and galleries. Absolutely. So that's why I passionately talk about this stuff, you know, and yeah, I can say what I feel like about it because I don't need any of these people to, you know, I'm making a living doing exactly what I'm doing. Yeah. Uh, And I'm going to, I'm going to make a living and I, my stuff is going to be on museum walls after I'm dead. 
For sure. Man. And regardless of people, whether they agree with me or not, I'm going to diversify what's on museum walls. Absolutely. That's what's going to happen. At least with my life, that's what I plan to do. That's one of my goals. Um, with or without people's help. And largely it's been without a lot of these, you know, yeah. people from the tradition that I respect. It's been without any of their help. And I don't need it, apparently. So I'm going to just keep moving. And I'm going to train artists uh, in black communities to make paintings in this, in this tradition. That's what I'm going to do. Because it's necessary. We need to diversify. Sure. We need to see more black people create. Why? Because if you're only talking about Sargent as this grand technical master, you're saying something subconsciously about black people. Like, what it, why can't we have a black person that can paint? Why? Why should it all be like white masters? That's absurd. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I don't see any reason why it should be the case. And if... People aren't committed to bringing that training to this community. Well, me coming from that community, I'm going to bring it back. That's one of my goals. Yeah. So Great. one of these days when I have a large enough platform, obviously I have to make enough money myself. I'm going to go donate time and teach black kids in the hood and projects where I came from and stuff, how to paint yeah. representational, how to lay down an imprimatur, how to draw from life. Yeah. Because it needs to be done. And then hopefully we'll see more of these people in these other institutions down the line. You know, and we can see more work that more adequately reflects the kinds of diversity we see in the real world, right. you know, which is important. I guess I guess this is this is why it's important. That I'm talking about this stuff because sure. no, like I don't I'm not I don't I'm not interested in sitting around talking about technique with artists. Technique is like <laughs> right. it's like what I, I when I was learning bebop from one of my friends named Neil. I remember I used to be really impressed with bebop technique. Now I have it. Right. Yeah. But I remember him telling me when I was first learning it, he said, after a while, technique is a given. Yeah. You right. want to be thinking about poetry and art. Yeah. And poetry and art comes from life. So it's stupid for artists to sit around talking about the studio practice and all this stuff, even though that stuff is very important when you're in the institution learning and so forth. But the stuff that inspires anything that is going to be worthwhile in the world in anybody's life who's not a technician is going to be something that has some emotional meaning and resonance with individuals that has nothing to do with how you created the image for them because they don't know how to do that. So the stuff that propels art is usually not just painting itself. It's life. That's why I'm not influenced by any of these academicians, modern day. I'm influenced by people like Bill Evans, one of my favorite 20th century musicians. Cool. People like John Coltrane, but yeah. like Johann Sebastian Bach. This is the kind of stuff that inspires me to make paintings because it's great nice. art yeah. and, it, and it has some emotional resonance. Right. And of course, technique is important in it, but technique isn't paramount. It does not overweigh or it does not outweigh the actual beauty. So it doesn't end up becoming like some sort of weird, oh, we fed box uh, patterns into a computer and it spit out a box piece. You, you, whenever you listen to those things you realize they don't sound anything like real box yeah. real box brings a tear to the eye you that know? movie uh tim's vermeer i thought was just awful yeah it's stupid it's stupid right i mean you, you you we've seen there's a video on youtube of coltrane's giant giant steps solo being played by a computer basically and it doesn't sound it has nowhere near the resonance that right. uh actual coltrane solo has yeah. it's because this, this stuff has to do with something that's ineffable and that's deeper. And that you're never going to get to about like Bill Evans, man. Scott LaFaro. I mean, 
I named my most recent painting I'm working on, Jade Visions, after Scott LaFaro's composition. Scott LaFaro played the bass beautifully. He was taken out at the age of 24. Oh, my God. He's a beautiful human being. I love this man. I love his music. Yeah. I love Bill Evans. You know? This stuff has changed my life. This stuff got me from through the hardest periods of my life. When my brother died, I never forget. I used to listen to Bill Evans every day. Yeah. This is the this is the stuff that uh, that I really felt and it resonated with me on a deep level. You know, these people. For a lot of these people, art is uh, it's just this is the most meaningful thing to sentient uh, creatures on this planet. This is this is a way that you can tap into something that that even if it feels meaningless, has some meaning at its core. Yeah. Yeah, man. Jazz, it's been uh, incredible talking to you. Is there anything you want to say before we uh, wrap up? Uh, no, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry if I, I, I get really passionate about that. That's the only thing I can do is apologize. <laughs> There's I'm nothing to very, apologize for, man. It's beautiful. I'm, I'm, I'm very, I'm very passionate about. Look, I can see that in your art. I think everybody can see that in your art, and it's been, it's been really great uh, talking with yeah, you man. and, and like, getting to getting to hear that passion in your voice. And uh, I just thanks, man. It's just been so fun talking with you. Yeah, man. Uh, thanks for having me. Thanks for being interested in the work. And uh, absolutely, you know, uh, I hope. Uh, yeah, one of these days, hopefully, I can meet you in person, man. I'm so, I'm so, I'm sorry, man. I can't. I I get so worked up about art, man. This is crazy. <laughs> it's crazy. <laughs> it's it's no, it's but, it's, um, it's really beautiful, and it, and it's it's. Uh, I mean, uh, you know, really, it's just been so great. Uh, getting to hear, getting to, getting to put a voice to the work, and um, yeah, and and just you know, I got, I had that sense looking at your paintings that you were this type of guy, and it's it's um uh, it's satisfying to, it's satisfying that um that you're this this whole person who's who's every bit you know in real life as as passionate as as it as you appear to be through the paintings. Thanks. Thanks a lot, man. Um, yeah, I, I, I admire and I just, I really admire, um, I admire the way you attack every day. That's just really, um, I have a lot of respect for that. And uh, a lot of admiration. Yeah. We, we, we got limited, we got a real limited amount of time on the planet. So, uh, the sooner we come to that realization, um, the more we can do that's productive and that's, I, I really do believe that, you know, we gotta, we, we gotta work really hard to, to, to positively impact the world. And uh, I, you know, Bill Evans, Bill Evans once said, you know, he was like, you know, there's so many problems in the world, you know, like you, it can almost be overwhelming. I'm paraphrasing what he said, but then he right. said, he could only hope to do whatever he did in a true way and hope that it would have a positive impact on the larger, the larger situation. Yeah. And so it's like, you can get overwhelmed with 
a zillion things, pollution, you know, injustice or whatever, you know, even the art world, just the problems within it, it's just enough to just paralyze a person. There's a certain kind of paralysis that comes from, was it the book, The Paradox of Choice? Yeah. When you have so many different things, it can lead to a paralysis and an ability to, to, uh, to, to even move. So it's best to, to find a thing that you more or less excel at and zero your focus into that and be as true and honest as you can with it. I hope that it'll have some sort of butterfly effect or resonance that, that actually works out from that and positive. Like, it's like I say, when I think about Bill Evans, it's like, it's crazy. I start getting missy eyed, but the guy is, his music has changed my life. Yeah. You know, and and it's positively affected my art. It's made me want to be the kind of person who's not up here tracing off of photos. Yeah. You know, yeah. and and he couldn't have ever hoped. He could have never even anticipated that. He could have never anticipated. Oh, by playing, uh, you know, Alice in Wonderland, I'm going to have an effect on jazz that makes him want to be a better artist and, and wants <laughs> him to be a true artist. But yeah. that's the effect that he had yeah. by just being honest and true with what he did. And that's the effect that we can have with what we do if we do it in a certain kind of sincerity and, and truthfulness. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's, you know? that's my whole thing, man, is just the, the sincerity. Just doing work that's sincere. Exactly. Um, but yeah, basically that's the, that's the point. I really want to highlight just people being honest and, and true to themselves. And yeah, you know, obviously at the front end, I was just telling you how like we should just, we should definitely push for people to be, you know, have a certain kind of technical mastery and not acquiesce to the, to just be lazy. Yeah. That's really what, what that, that's at the heart of what I was talking about with drawing is, is the lack of a respect for hard work. So obviously right. it's easier to, right. to, to trace something off than it is to to draw it from life. But that's the lazy that's the lazy way out, yeah. right? Yeah. So yeah. Anyway, thank thanks so much, man. I'm I'm glad you reached out. Oh and, man, uh, thank you, thank you. It's so much fun, so much fun yeah, to talk. Yeah. I appreciate you appreciate you taking the time out of your day, man. All right, take care, man. All right, man. Have a great day. Okay, thanks again to Jazz Knight for taking the time to talk and for being so open. Um, I think we all really benefit from such open and frank dialogue. So thanks to Jazz for talking. Thanks to you guys for listening. And as always, if you're listening on iTunes, go ahead and give us a rating of seven and a half stars. If you want to support the podcast by giving me money, you can go to my website, dannygrantfineart.com, go to the podcast page, and click the donate button in the top right corner. I give a huge thank you to those of you who've done that so far. Um, if you want to drop me a line, you can do that, danny at dannygrantfineart.com, and that's it. Thank you guys so much. I'll talk to you next time. Bye.